All right, let's turn again to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. And we find that there are two life-changing events in the biblical record of Jacob. One occurs on his flight to Haran that we just read this morning in order to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. And the other is his return from Haran to the promised land to reconcile with his brother. And on both occasions... Jacob is met by God in a vision that involves angelic hosts. And he names the first place, as we read this morning, Bethel. And that's where his journey of faith with God begins. And he recognizes the Lord's presence and the Lord's protection and provision. If the Lord provides what he says for him, The Lord will be with him and the Lord will keep him. Uh, If the Lord will help him return to that place in peace, then Jacob swears that the Lord will be his God. And from this point, he's going to face conflict. He's going to face crises, trials, and hardships in his struggles with Laban, his future father-in-law. But through it all, he will become Israel the one who strives with God and man and prevails. One commentator began uh, this chapter by saying, the clear revelation of God's dealings can transform a worldly individual into a worshiper. Jacob at best was a worldly man. He grasped the significance of being blessed by God but seemed focused on the material aspect of that blessing. And he obtained it by sinful and illegitimate means. So far, there's been little indication that he actually understood the spiritual importance of the Abrahamic covenant or had, by faith, entered into it. So this is supported by the words of his vow, Then the Lord shall be my God. That kind of indicates that at the time, the Lord was not his God. The Lord had not yet revealed himself to Jacob as he had to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. But now at the lowest point of his life, we find that the Lord comes and he meets with Jacob and he begins the lengthy process of changing his life. The same is true of all those who believe. There is a time, there is a place where God meets us. He reveals our hopeless condition to us, and he brings us to faith in himself. That's when our journey with him begins until he brings us safely home to heaven. And along the way, there may be many other places where he meets us to keep us on the right pathway. So let's be encouraged by what God did for Jacob when he met him at Bethel. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for these great stories in Old Testament times that still teach us lessons today. We're thankful, Lord, for the time and the place where you met us in salvation. We're thankful, Lord, for the times and places where you meet us along the way to encourage us, to chide us, 
to give us whatever we need. And Lord, help us always to have a mind that you speak to us, that you meet with us in your word. And Lord, that you can do so even every day. So Lord, we just pray you'll encourage and bless us as we look to this story in Jacob's life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our narrative this morning can be broken down into two sections. First of all, God's revelation to Jacob, and then Jacob's response to that revelation. In the first, we see that God graciously meets us where we are in order to bring us to where we ought to be. And in the second, we find that our response to God's revelation should be reverential awe and worshipful commitment. So let's begin here uh, with the Lord as he meets Jacob at this special place. And we first of all are reminded of Jacob's fearful flight in the first couple of verses. Jacob's not where he ought to be at all. He's not really trusting the Lord. He's not obeying him. We have learned by cunning manipulation that he weaseled uh, Esau out of his birthright with no qualms. He's lied to his father. He's deceived his father in order to obtain the blessing that goes along with the birthright. And there's little indication of faith in the Lord to work out his promise for Jacob. And so he takes matters in his own hands, and he's going to grasp that blessing at all costs, even though he doesn't really fully understand everything that it entails. We know that Jacob is the chosen seed. That was revealed at his birth. And I'm sure that what God said then was uh, uh, repeated many times to him by his mother and perhaps his father. But the Lord does not have grandchildren, does he? The time must come when Jacob elects to have the Lord as his God, trusting him alone to be his savior and the fulfiller of his promises. Now, Jacob uh, has begun to experience the truth that you reap what you sow. God's not going to allow him to stay on that pathway of deceit and manipulation and grasping uh, for this blessing without spiritual understanding, without faith. Let's think about his circumstances as we read here that he leaves Beersheba, his home, and he goes to this distant land of uh, Haran, some 550 miles away. He's obtained the birthright. He's gotten the blessing. But is he experiencing the fruit of either? Actually, Esau now stands to benefit more from his father's wealth than Jacob does in his absence. Did he think this would be the outcome of his, of his conniving? He doesn't have an inheritance. He's fleeing for his life. He has nothing but the clothes on his back and maybe enough provisions for his trip. He's leaving his beloved mother behind. He's alone. He's on his own. He doesn't know what the future holds. Is he remorseful? Is he fearful? Does he wonder how the blessing of Isaac will ever be fulfilled? And this is not where Jacob thought he would be, and it's not where God wanted him to be. 
So as the story unfolds for us, we see that God meets Jacob in a particular place in verse 2. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. Jacob has likely traveled at least 40 miles on this first day by foot, the distance between Beersheba and the region of Bethel. And I'm sure he's very tired. And the sun has set. It's time to settle down. It's time to rest for the rest of the night. And the setting of the sun in the word of God often symbolizes a time of personal darkness and distress. Jacob has begun a dark journey into the unknown. In Haran, he will experience suffering and conflict and strife. He doesn't know that yet. And Jacob spends the night now at a certain place. Now, as we read through this, did you catch on to the number of times that word occurs in the story? We find that he mentions that place two more times. Then the Lord mentions the land on which you lie in verse 13 and promises to give that to Jacob, an allusion to the place. Later, when Jacob wakes up from from his dream, he says this place two times, and then he names the place Bethel. So a number of times, the place, which is indescript, Uh, is mentioned, but that place becomes holy ground where God meets Jacob and begins to change his life. Do you remember the place that God met you, that God began to change your life through salvation? So we think about this background and the place that Jacob uh, comes to, we, we can make a couple of applications. First of all, lost people are are not where God wants them to be. And sometimes he has to take them very low in their life to help them see their sinful condition so he can begin to deal with them and move them toward faith and salvation. But also, there are times when God's people are not where they should be either. And the Lord has to take them to a place in their lives where he can meet with them, he can deal with their waywardness and bring them back to where they need to be. And Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob was either in, in one or both of those places in his life. So now let's see how God did meet Jacob as we see his dream explained to us in verse 12. Then he dreamed, and behold, A ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So Jacob has a dream that night in which the Lord comes to him and reveals himself to uh, Jacob. And God has previously revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac through direct revelation. This is the first time now he's going to speak to Jacob. So this is a strategic moment in his life. And he beholds a strange sight. And imagine if you had a dream of this nature, how it would affect you. And the the terminology here draws us into what he actually saw with the word behold. That's something that arrests our attention. 
and it helps us to envision what Jacob experienced. So Jacob sees this ladder or this stairway uh, whose base is on the earth and its top reaches up into the heavens. And it's like he's envisioning this and he's kind of talking to himself and he's saying, uh, look, there's a ladder. It's going all the way up to heaven. And, and look, there are angels going up and down the ladder. And look at the very top, there's Jehovah himself. And we kind of can make the picture in our own mind of what he was dreaming. So what does all this mean? Well, the Lord reveals that he's aware of things that are going on in this world that he created. He's not off somewhere where he can't be contacted or, or he can't uh, be reached. And uh, 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 his angels are his ministering spirits, as we learned in other places in the word of God. And they're going back and forth between heaven and this earth, and they're doing the bidding of God. And so there is a way open to God, but it cannot be found aside from the mediation of God. God gave him this dream. And people try to build their own way to heaven, like back in the story of the Tower of Babel, but they'll never reach God. It's always got to be the other way uh, around. God reaches man. Do you remember what Jesus said when he met Nathaniel? For the first time, Jesus alluded to this vision when he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see the heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Jesus is pretty much saying that he is that ladder that reaches from earth to heaven and heaven to earth. He's the one who will become that that bridge, that gateway between the two when he is lifted up between heaven and earth and he suffers and dies for the sins of humanity. Now, of course, Jacob would not have that understanding. Uh, He hasn't had that kind of revelation yet. The Messiah has not come, but he would surely know that God is meeting with him on that day and there's a way between him and God. So let's take a look then at what God said to him, what God's revelation was when he met with Jacob on that day. And of course, if Jacob ever needed a reviving, if he needed a meeting with God, it surely was now. So the Lord gives to him the covenantal blessing of Abraham and a personal promise. First of all, the blessing in verse 13. And behold, there's that word behold again. Drawing our attention. Look, listen to this. What I have to say here is very important. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So he identifies himself uh, in his relationship to Jacob's father, and grandfather, whom we know in our story so far, were men who believed God, who accepted the Lord, and uh, received the promise of the covenant. Now, Jacob has received the promise from his father, Isaac, but now the Lord is giving it to him directly. And again, remember 
when Jacob deceived his father to get the blessing and uh, he came in, his father says, well, how did you get this so quickly? Do you remember what he said? He said, well, the Lord, your God, brought it to me. Not the Lord, my God, but the Lord, your God. And now in grace, the Lord comes to him and the Lord blesses him. Jacob did not deserve it, just like we don't deserve God's salvation. But the Lord gives us what we don't deserve and what we cannot earn. Now the Lord repeats the covenant almost verbatim. When we put all of these revelations together, we've seen several times the Lord has come to these men and he's given this promise to them. So the Lord says to him, uh, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. So he's promising the land and he's promising descendants. And he says, these descendants will be as the dust of the earth. He said that before. And then he says, you shall spread or break out abroad to the west, the east, the north, the south. So he's going to possess much land. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, we've seen uh, other nations blessed through Abram and Isaac. We will uh, later on through Jacob. But eventually, this is talking about the coming of the Messiah. So although Jacob is fleeing the land out of fear, God promises that that land one day will be his. Although he's not yet married, he promises descendants without number. And although he's resting in a nondescript place, they will spread out in every direction. And finally, the promised seed that will bless all nations will arrive, and that will be Jesus, the Messiah. Jacob may have been in doubt about the fulfillment of the promises right then that he had received from Jacob, but now he has the promise out of the mouth of God himself. The Lord then adds this, the promise of his presence and his protection and his provision in verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. What a great word of encouragement to Jacob as the Lord meets with him. Again, we have that term, behold, listen to what I have to say. Pay attention, because I promise that I will be with you and I will keep you. Now, the Lord's presence indicates his protective care. He'll be with Jacob now. He'll be with Jacob in the future. And the verb to keep here means to guard, to watch over, to protect. And this will be, uh, this will be demonstrated many times in Jacob's future sojourn in the land of Haran. The Lord also promises that he'll bring Jacob safely back to the land that he is now fleeing. It's going to be two decades, but he will do it. So this suggests that God has to do something about that broken relationship with Esau that causes him to flee in the first place. And we'll find that uh, the, the healing of that relationship will come as he returns to the land. The Lord further promises <clears throat> that he will not forsake Jacob <clears throat> excuse me, until his word is fulfilled. 
Now, that doesn't mean that when his word is fulfilled, he'll, uh, he'll not continue to be with him anymore. The idea here is that God says, I will be faithful and I will complete this specific promise that I'm speaking to you. So the Lord's going to be with him all the time. And again, a great encouragement uh, this uh, <clears throat> would be to Jacob, <clears throat> who, is, who was not deserving of it, but certainly in need of it <clears throat> at that time. <clears throat> Just as the Lord promised these things to Jacob, he does so to us today. His promise of blessing to all nations has been fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that time, the gospel has been preached all around the world. People in every nation have been saved. So that great blessing, which is spiritual nature, is continuing even now as I speak. <clears throat> then we think of all the instances or, that are recorded in the Bible that God will be with his people. Do you remember one of the names of Jesus that was given at his birth? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. The last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the Lord is always present with his people to protect them, to provide for them, and he is so until he's finished with them and brings them safely home to heaven with him. And as we faithfully follow the Lord, well, nothing can enter our life outside of his providential care. So all this is happening to encourage Jacob to set him on the right pathway, to give him some hope of the future. So what is Jacob's response? That's important for us as well. And we find here that God's people should respond to his revelation and reverential awe and worshipful commitment. And we see this um, response of Jacob brought out to us in three ways. Let's take a look at verse 16 as he expresses his reverential awe at what has taken place. <clears throat> then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So, first of all, he recognizes that the Lord is in that place. Jacob hasn't been thinking a lot about the Lord, at least not in terms of his eternal presence. It may well be that he was not fully aware of this truth yet. Perhaps he was like the pagans of that day that believed their deities had control of a certain geographical area. And so his God would be the God that's over Canaan. And since he was heading out of the land, well, he wouldn't be present in the places that he would go from that area where he was in Beersheba. This new understanding causes him to respond to God in reverential fear. It says here that he's afraid. And this fear was not demonstrated when God appeared to Abraham and Isaac. Could it be that God, uh, Jacob is fearful because of his sin, because of his failure? Was he beginning to have a proper knowledge and respect of the Lord who 
is in every place, and he knows all that we do as his angels uh, minister and go back and forth from the happenings and the events on the earth to the throne of God. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of his walk with God. He says that this place, reminding us again of uh, where he laid his head, is awesome. That connotes reverential fear, almost a sense of dread. No longer was this place a nondescript parcel of ground. It was a place where God connected earth and heaven. Of course, there was no literal building there. There wasn't a house there. There wasn't a a visible gate. Uh, But he knows now that God communicates with his people. He knows the reality of the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. We might say that Jacob became woke, but in the right way not in the silly gibberish that we hear about today. He woke to the reality of God, which struck him with fearful reverence. What his father and grandfather may have conveyed to him through stories about their life experiences now became real to him as he saw the God of heaven who broke through in that dream. To walk with God one must awaken to the spiritual truth of who he is and how he can, he can be accessed. Well, the second thing we see here is that Jacob memorializes his meeting with God in verses 18 and 19. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. So the first thing he does as he gets up in the morning is he takes that stone and he sets it up, perhaps upright in some way, and he commemorates that which has happened. He commemorates this dream and what God has told him. And stones of this nature were set up in Old Testament times to remind people of important events or actions. It might commemorate a covenant between uh, two people. It might record or remind people of an incident that happened in this place that involved maybe a miracle from God. So here it memorializes what Jacob has learned, that the God of heaven is present in mighty power with his people on earth. When he poured oil on top of it, well, that was an act of consecration, which made it a a sacred place, a holy place, where God met with a man. It's interesting that Jacob, however, did not build an altar there like Abraham and Isaac did when they met God. So it doesn't seem that, that he has arrived yet at that full point of, of worship in his life. But his faith is certainly beginning to blossom. And then he gives a name to this place. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of that city previously was Luz. Excuse me. So the area 
uh, of Bethel, which wasn't at that point a city. It was very near this place called Luz, which archaeologists says was quite an affluent place, but compared to what happened to Jacob, it was like nothing. It hardly even is mentioned in the passage. So Bethel was uh, an area, a region where uh, Abraham had previously come and built an altar and, and, and uh, raised it up to the Lord. But now Jacob gives the name to this place, which means house of God, a place where God came down, where he, he dwelt, so to speak. And uh, this, interestingly, will become the second most important place of Israel's worship. The only other place named more than Bethel is Jerusalem. So again, house of God. Well, later on, it represents something totally against God, but now it is a sacred place. And uh, every time we thank God for our salvation, uh, we're memorializing that, that day, that time when God met us in salvation. And we ought to recognize that time and that place in our history as the most important time in our life. Now, the last thing that Jacob does is he makes a vow to God. And in the Old Testament, vows were very important. This is a sacred vow. And some expositors, especially the older ones, say that, we should read this uh, down in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 20. <clears throat> then Jacob made a vow saying, since God will be with me. Now, that's a possible translation sometimes, but I looked in several English translations and I didn't find any that translated it since. So I believe the if should stay there. This is a conditional clause. And again, this is unlike his, his forebears. Um, previously, God made his covenant to the patriarchs conditional to their obedience. Now, in grace, God gave it to them. But if they were going to actually receive it, then they had to walk with the Lord and be faithful and loyal and obedient to him. But now we see that Jacob does something different. He makes his worship conditional on God fulfilling those promises that he gave to him. If God will really do what he says, if he'll really be with me and keep me and provide for me and bring me back here to this place safely, then he will be my God. So he's changing his perspective about life. He's thinking about what is going to be going ahead now. And uh, by looking uh, for God's intervention in his life, he's going to see if God keeps his word, if he keeps his promises. Now his conditions, as we just mentioned, are based on what God said that he'll be with him, that he'll keep him, that he'll provide for all of his needs, that he'll return to his home safely. And he goes on to say, furthermore, this stone which I have 
set up here as a pillar, that's going to remind me of this time in my life. It's going to remind me uh, of what God did here, and I'm going to make a house for him. In other words, I'll erect an altar here, and I will worship God, and he'll be my God, and I'll give to him a tenth of whatever he blesses me with. So that's his part. That's what he will do. He makes his promise to God. Now, this is Jacob's first step of faith, albeit a small one and perhaps a bit shaky. Before God met him, he was fleeing for his life, experiencing a harsh outcome of his sin. He's all alone. He's far from God. But now he has a goal. He has a purpose in life. God has come to him with great promises. He's willing to let God work these things out in his life. He's not really provoking God. He's just testing God at his word. And he's going to be expecting the Lord to keep that word. And if God does that, then there's no reason why he should not make him his Lord and his God. Now, as the story continues, we know this is going to happen over a 20-year period of time. Jacob's going to be married. He's going to have children. He's going to have to deal with Laban's deceit. And after he leaves Haran, Laban is going to catch up to him and he's going to demand that Jacob return. But Jacob's response proves how God had fulfilled his word during those years. This is what he told Laban. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. So he wasn't depending upon Laban. He was depending upon the Lord because the Lord proved that he'd been with him all those years. And now he'll return and he'll make the Lord his God. When the Lord promises his people that his presence is always with them, that he'll provide for them and protect them, that he will not forsake them until he brings them safely home with him, how can they not make him their God? So Jacob is learning to believe in the Lord and to trust the Lord and to hold the Lord to his word. So we can draw some other applications perhaps from this. The Lord meets us where we are so that he can make us what we need to be and ought to be. That begins with salvation. Have you made the Lord your God because he saved you? The Lord Jesus is the stairway between heaven and earth. He is the only way to God. We've learned that many, many times through our study of Scripture. It's through his provision that God meets us in grace and saves us and puts us on that pathway of faith. But you know, there are times uh, in our life where we stray, where we go our own way, where we mess up, where we sin. And God has to come and meet us again and deal with us and convict us and get us back on the right pathway. God does that. He meets us. 
And we live in a day where fortunately we can have our own copy of his word. He's not going to meet with us like he met with Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. He's not going to come to us in a dream and tell us what to do. He doesn't need to. We have his word. And we can meet with him in that word every single day and get the direction, the guidance, the encouragement that we need as we sit down with his word and we uh, bring it into our life. So Lord will meet us wherever we're at, whatever our need is, whatever he needs to do to deal with us, if we'll be in his word and let the word, in a sense, be the gate to heaven. And then we remember that our response to this should be similar to that of Jacob's. That when God reveals truth to us in his word, through the preaching of it, through the reading of it, whatever means, that we, we are to respond to that in a certain way. With reverential awe. With uh, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of worship and the, uh, um, wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. It comes from, again, our relationship to the Lord. As he uh, meets with us in his word, we respond to his word by being obedient to it, by being uh, uh, full of faith. And then we commit ourselves to that word. We know God will fulfill his word. So we make him our Lord every day. And we believe the promises that he has given to us. So through life, we constantly are going to be setting up this this pillar, this stone, if you will, which is the word of God. And when we get discouraged, uh, when we're off the way and we sense that, we come back and we are reminded that the Lord will be with you. The Lord will keep you. The Lord won't leave you until you arrive safely home and he's done with you. And our response is always to be worshipful, to be committed, to make him our God each and every day. So let's be sure that we, we do that like Jacob did. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for the instruction of your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that you met us one day and showed us our sin and our need. And help us, Lord, to turn to you in faith and belief and trusting Christ as Savior. Lord, help us to memorialize that day by thanking you for it uh, in our life now. But Lord, help us as we continue in life we, we still need you to meet with us. We still need your encouragement. We still need your confidence. We still need your direction from your word. We still need you to uh, keep us on the pathway that we're so prone to leave. So Lord, as you meet with us in your word, help us to be obedient to it. Help us to respect it uh, with fear and awe. And Lord, help us to increase our commitment to you as we, uh, as we read that word and we understand it. So Lord, help us today uh, to continue our journey of faith and to grow in our relationship to you and be a, a witness for how you meet with men and change their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat>